Well, if you want to open up to Mark chapter 10, I'm going to read verses 32 through to 45. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Verse 32, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid and taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they, became, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant." And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I want to start this morning by confessing from the outset that I need to hear, I need to hear this particular message. I think probably more than anyone else in this church here this morning. When Dave asked me to preach this week, uh, he also asked me to choose a text. And Mark chapter 10, verse 32 to 45, was a text that came to my mind straight away. You see, Mark 10, verses 32 to 45, is a lesson on greatness. And if you're looking for a title for today's message, it's a lesson on greatness. You see, this is, a, this is a section of Scripture that, is, that has challenged me, particularly in recent years, continues to challenge me today. And it's also a section of Scripture, if I'm honest with you, I really struggle to apply in my own life. You see, for as long as I can remember, I've always been drawn to the worldly idea of greatness, as long as I can remember. I went to a high school down the road in Warunga where, where greatness was literally celebrated. A school that, that hammered the pursuit of greatness into us. 
week after week, year after year, for six long years. You see, I was told that Knox boys, <laughs> that's right, Knox boys could do anything, anything that they put their mind to. And because we went to that school, we had, a, uh, we had an advantage, apparently, over every other kid in Sydney, uh, particularly the ones at the state schools and even the ones at the other private schools down the road. We, we had an advantage. Knox was, Knox was supposed to open up doors for greatness for people like me. And, and the school would often uh, hold up in front of us, dangle in front of us, uh, great Knox boys who have, who have gone before us and become great. Uh, such examples would be a former Prime Minister, Goth Whitlam, uh, radio personality, John Laws, uh, Hollywood actors like Hugo Weaving, uh, he's a dude who played the elf in The Lord of the Rings, if you don't know, great Australian actor, uh, <laughs> was also uh, in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, but we try, to forget, we try and forget that one. Um, but my personal favourite, Wolverine. Hugh Jackman was an old Knox boy. So, you see, these guys, th they set the bar pretty darn high for, for guys like me and, and guys, the average bloke at, at Knox, pretty darn high. And so I, I, I always dreamt that I might be one of those successful Knox boys one day. I used to dream about being yet another success story. I used to dream about greatness. For me, it started, it started at an early age. I, I think one of the first phases I went through, and I went through multiple phases, and they all connected to greatness. Uh, one of the first phases I remember I went through was, um, was a, a phase of, uh, of ice skating. Uh, I think I was about 12 or 13. My dad took me out and I brought ice skates, and, and I, wanted, I wanted to be an ice hockey player. I soon got over that, uh, and um, my passions were sparked by, by soccer. I wanted to be a socceroo. So what did I do? I, I trained hard uh, for, for almost six years of my, of my Knox schooling, and, but not once, not once did I ever get into that first 11. I, I worked my butt off, I trained hard, I had big visions of greatness, representing the school, then pot potentially representing the country. I didn't even get into the first 11 at Knox, let alone represent uh, Australia um, in the World Cup. So that was, that was a failure. Uh, I then, I then had, went through this phase of, uh, of snowboarding in my mid to late teens. Uh, I spent a lot of money uh, going down to the snow, bought a snowboard, uh, thought it was something I might be able to pick up real good and, and had visions again of, of grandeur, of, of doing huge stunts in front of huge crowds. Um, another pursuit of greatness that, that failed miserably. Uh, after that, I, I got into motocross for a year when I left school. Uh, didn't work out too well either, funny enough. And, um, and then after that was surfing. I gave two or three years of my life in my early 20s to surfing. I was in the water multiple times a week and <laughs> I tried my heart out. I wanted, I wanted to be on the pro circuit. I wanted to be I want to be on TV. I want to be a great surfer and be able to stand up and, and talk about Jesus in front of the crowds at the same time, pulling off huge moves and airs um, in the waves. Um, but then when my good friend Willsey missed out on being a pro surfer, I thought, well, if he can't make it to be a pro surfer, I got no chance at all. So I gave that one away. Then I went into full-time ministry. I went over to Sovereign Grace Ministries where I went to Pastors College and, and I was interning and I suddenly, have, I suddenly had grand ideas of, of being a, a fantastic preacher, 
of being uh, someone that might uh, represent uh, a Charles Spurgeon, <laughs> the Charles Spurgeon of Australia. Um, it wasn't too long before it became apparent to me and others that I was, I was no Charles Spurgeon and never would be. And, and now I'm working in the secular world, uh, I'm working as a real estate agent uh, in the local area and, um, and I, have, I, I've, I have ideas of, of being a great real estate agent. And uh, so far, that hasn't worked out quite like that either. So, I need to hear this message this morning. I really do. I need this reminder. I was trying to search for a, uh, for a definition of greatness, and um, where else do you look these days? But Wikipedia. And uh, it was a good summary, I thought, of greatness. Wikipedia said, greatness is a concept of a state of superiority. Greatness is a concept of a state of superiority, affecting a person, object or place. The concept carries implication that the particular person or object, when compared to others of a similar type, has clear and perceivable advantage. You see, that's, that's the definition of greatness that I was pursuing and still am tempted to pursue day after day. I, I want to be great. I want to be superior to others. I want to have an advantage and I want to use that advantage for my own personal selfish gain. That's, what, that's the truth, if I'm honest with myself, for, for my own personal power to wield authority. But in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45, I found an, an alternative definition of greatness. In verses 32 to 45, what we have is a lesson on greatness by the servant saviour Jesus. It's a lesson that we will see shortly that the disciples desperately needed to hear and it's a lesson that I desperately need to hear and it's a lesson that probably many of you here this morning desperately need to hear. And I've got two simple points. I'm a simple guy and so I like simple points, works well for me. Two simple points. The first one is greatness redefined. And the second is greatness modelled. Greatness redefined and greatness modelled. So firstly, greatness redefined. Mark chapter 10, verse 32 to 45 provides us with an alternative definition and understanding of greatness. Particularly and in contrast to how the world would understand greatness. You see, the world understands greatness to be a, a state of superiority, where one person has a clear and perceivable advantage. Now, that advantage might take many forms. It might be a physical appearance. It might be a physical athleticness. It, uh, it may be intelligence, business prowess. Or it might be uh, financial stability. The list can go on and on. But upon reading chapter 10 in the Gospel of Mark, it becomes quite apparent that Jesus' own disciples, funnily enough, they're not even immune from the, from the worldly lure, the pervasive lure of worldly greatness. In fact, what we learn here, guys, is that they're not just tempted by it. They've, they've already given into it and they're, they're pursuing it. 
You see, in verse 42, what can best be described as a scandalous request is made of Jesus from two of the disciples. But before we take another closer look at that, I just want to give you a bit of, a bit of context here to what came before this request. You see, for three years, prior to the account of Mark chapter 10, the disciples had enjoyed what you can best describe as an, an intimate friendship with Jesus as he had lived with them, as he had traveled with them, he taught them, he trained them. And for those three years, those 12 disciples, they watched Jesus. They watched him model humility and servanthood time and time again. They watched him model it to the down and out of society, the prostitutes, the lepers, demon-possessed people. And they watched him model it and practice it to the elite of society as well. But by the time we get to chapter 9, the, the chapter before what, the 10 we're looking at today, it becomes clear that the disciples, they'd already been gripped by a, by a pride, by a selfish ambition. You don't need to turn here, but in verse 34 of chapter 9, we learn that the disciples had been, they'd been arguing amongst each other along the road. And what they'd been arguing about was, which of them was the greatest? Can you believe it? After all that time with Jesus, they're arguing about which one of them is the greatest. Now, we pick up the story in chapter 10, and Jesus, he's on the final straight of his earthly ministry, all right? I mean, I'm talking Jerusalem is, is just a day or two away here. He's on his, his final straight. The whole reason that he came to earth, his whole reason for the mission was about to take place in Jerusalem. And twice before verse 32, Jesus had told the disciples of his impending death once he reached Jerusalem. And now for the third time, and this time with the most detail, in verse 32, Jesus communicates how upon reaching Jerusalem, he will be betrayed by his own, handed over to the Gentiles, who will then proceed to mock him, spit on him, flog him, and ultimately kill him, crucify him on a Roman cross. And it's then, following straight from this disclosure, in verse 42, that we, that we read this request from James and John. They say, teacher, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Jesus, with typical grace and humility, replies, what do you want me to do for you? And they respond, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. What a scandalous request. Can you believe it? Not to mention the, the timing of it. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, where he's going to be betrayed, mocked, spit, at, beaten and crucified. And all the disciples are thinking about, particularly James and John, are themselves. You see, such a request, it, it revealed something about them, didn't it? It revealed their hearts. Can you see that? It revealed 
It revealed proud and selfish hearts. You see, they were gripped by the pursuit of worldly greatness. They desired power and authority. You see, they had a sense that something big was about to go down in Jerusalem. They weren't that dumb. They weren't that stupid. They'd been paying attention. They knew something was going down. Now, they probably didn't expect it to be their Lord and His humble crucifixion. But they knew He was about to enter into His kingdom. What that was going to look like, they clearly, they clearly didn't understand. But they knew something was going down and it was going to involve Jesus entering into His kingdom on arrival in Jerusalem. And they wanted part of that. They wanted some of that glory. And they saw this opportunity, and I'm sure they timed it right, along the road, just outside of Jerusalem, to grab Jesus and say, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What a request. And then we read in verse 38, Jesus, observing their ignorance about the nature of what was about to happen in Jerusalem, he responds, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized? With the baptism I am to be baptized with? And once again, James and John respond with with a self-confidence. We are able. Jesus continues to say that, yes, they will undergo a form of suffering. You will drink and you will be baptized. But that suffering will not come close to the nature of divine suffering that Jesus is about to encounter on their behalf and in their place. So what about the rest of the disciples? Well, in verse 41, we read that that they were indignant, they were angry, they were mad. You see, once the other brothers caught, caught wind of that request of James and John, their hostile response of indignation, it reveals... It reveals their proud and selfish hearts as well. We learned that back in, in chapter 9, verse 34, that they'd been previously arguing about which of them was the greatest. And then here in, in chapter 10, they might lose out on those positions. James and John might just get ahead of them. And so they're mad, they're angry, they're jealous. You see, they too had fallen prey to the lure of worldly greatness. And they were were seeking power and authority. It's an interesting picture that that chapters 9 and 10 painted the disciples, isn't it? Maybe it's one that we're not that familiar with. But what's painted here is is a bunch of proud guys jostling with one another around the Savior, Jesus. Let's just let's just stop here for a second. Let me ask you a question. Do you see yourselves in the disciples, in this picture here? Do you see yourselves at all? I know I can see myself. I can see myself. Are you aware of, of pride and, and selfish ambition in your heart? Do you you feel that unrelenting, worldly lure of greatness? Are you currently pursuing 
greatness as the world would define it. Maybe you're trying to pursue it in this church. Or maybe, maybe it's at home with your family. Or maybe it's at uni, in your studies, or in your workplace with your career. For me, the, the pursuit of worldly greatness, it's a, it's a constant temptation, if I'm honest with you. Constant temptation. I feel the pull, the lure of it when it comes to serving in the church. I feel its pull and lure in the way that I, I lead my wife at home. And right now, particularly, I'm feeling it at work, in, in my career as a, as a real estate agent. I'm, I'm tempted to want to wanna put my energies and time and effort into being a successful and great real estate agent. I, I, I've even fantasized about, uh, had, had dreams about, uh, you know, being one of those real estate agents who travels around Australia and, um, and uh, provides motivation uh, for other real estate agents. It, it gives an example of, of how successful they've been in real estate and, and, uh, and how if they just applied things the right way and uh, would listen to the way I did things, they too would be great and successful real estate agents. I, I honestly, I think about those things. I do. Gives you a little indication of what goes on in my heart. But just like all my other plans and my attempts, my feeble attempts at greatness, you know, God has thwarted each and every one of them. All I wanted to do was be, was be great at something. I just want to be great at something. Now, I can do lots of different things, and that's great. People remind me of that. My wife does. You can, do, you can surf, you can skateboard, you can, you can uh, rollerblade, you can ice skate, whatever. That's great, fantastic. But I want, to, I want to be really good at one of those things. That's all I want. That's all I've asked for. But you know what? God, in His kindness, every single time, He's thwarted that. And He continues to do so. And you know, as I'm studying, as I'm studying this passage this last week, I stopped and I thought, I wonder whether God's trying to teach me something here. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I, wa- I wonder whether He's been trying to teach me something here for the past 31 years of my life. And maybe now I'm only starting to realize that. I told you I need to hear this message. I need to, I need to read these verses again and again. You see, in verses 42 to 44, Jesus, He redefines greatness for us, all right? He redefines it. He provides us with a clear definition of what biblical greatness looks like. And let me tell you, it looks nothing like worldly greatness. Let me read verse 42 to 44 again. And Jesus called to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Servant and slave. You see, they're not the sort of 
roles or, or words that are synonymous with, with greatness, are they? I mean, all those who are considered great in today's world, they, they have slaves and servants. They're not called slaves and servants these days, but they're called PAs, they're called advisors, they're called, you know, fitness instructors, they're called bodyguards. But right here in chapter 10 of Mark's Gospel, Jesus sets the record straight for eternity. He, he completely and utterly flips the worldly idea and understanding of greatness on his head. He flips it upside down. He turns it around and he redefines it as a lowly position of humble service. If you don't remember anything else up until now, remember this. True greatness is characterised by humility of service. True greatness, as the Bible would define it, is characterised by humility of service. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate here, if you could sum it up in a sentence. You see, Jesus is saying to His disciples, and He's saying to us here today in Sydney, that our lives each and every one of us who profess to be followers of Christ, who have put our trust in Jesus for our salvation, should be characterised by humble service. If you want to be truly great in the eyes of God, then our lives should be given over to, a, to an all-consuming, listen, an all-consuming pursuit humble service of others. When I stop for a few minutes and I take a look around this church, which is what I actually did uh, last week, I stopped, uh, took a look around the church and just took it in, soaked it in. I see around me so many examples of true greatness, of the sort of greatness that Jesus is talking about here in Mark chapter 10. All around me, I see it up here on the stage before the service begins. I see it at the sound desk. I see it. I see it in the kitchen. I see it. I see it in the kids' ministry. It's. I see it in the car park. It's. It's all around us. You. You guys are a, a fantastic example of modelling true greatness. Thank you, because guys like me where that doesn't come as naturally. I need examples like you, so thank you. Thank you for your example. It's such a young church, and yet already so many, so many outstanding examples of, of greatness, of God's grace working in your lives. There is, however, one particular person that I just, I just sense that it's right to draw attention to and to honour publicly this morning, um, this, let me give you a bit of a rundown on this young man's, uh, man, man's day. He, <laughs> he gets up at, I don't know what time, probably before seven. Um, he jumps in the car with his dad. He goes to Dave Taylor, the pastor's house. He, he helps his dad unload, load, sorry, load the, all the equipment into the van. He gets here with his dad at 8.30. 
And he just starts unloading that van and he, sets, he starts setting up with the help of others, but he sets up so much of what you see here. And then, and then he goes, and then he goes and, and often he'll, he'll serve in the car park, directing, waving people in, greeting people. And then he, then he might go to, to the kids' ministry and he's, and he's serving there. And then at 12.45 on the dot, he's usually one of the first people to start packing up, to start clearing up. You don't even have to ask him. This, this young man just gets to it and, and serves his heart out. And then he'll be here right to the end of the day and he's the last one to go with his dad as the car's loaded again. But they don't go home and rest. <laughs> he then goes to the pastor's house, Dave's house, and, un- and helps his dad unload the car. And finally gets home at probably somewhere around, I don't know, 1.32 in the afternoon. <laughs> and that young man is Caleb Chavez. And mate, that is true greatness. As I think is biblically defined, as, as Jesus is trying to communicate here. He's a, he's a young man who serves in, in a way that most of us probably don't even recognise. I didn't even realize what he was doing until I was chatting to his father one afternoon. I had no idea. You, you don't notice Caleb serving in that way. But that, that, that church is that's an example of true greatness in our midst. So I thank, I thank you, mate, for your example. You provoke me. You provoke me to godliness, to pursue true greatness, as Jesus would define it. Thank you. Can I say too that, I'll say this whilst Dave's away, uh, so it's not to embarrass him, but you know what? We are so blessed here at Sovereign Grace Church Sydney, aren't we? To have a, to have a pastor who, whose life is characterised by humility of service. Right? We, we have a pastor who, 12, 12 to 16 weeks ago, he hardly knew any of us. And yet, what did he do? He picked up his life in the UK. He left his family, his friends, the church that he'd been a part of for, for so many years. And he picks his family up and he moves to the other side of the world. And, and he starts serving a people who, who hardly know him, who he hardly knows, who hardly has any relationship with. And he starts serving them and he loves them. And he, behind the scenes, he, he makes sure the programs and things are running smoothly. And he works hard. I can tell you, he works hard studying the Word of God and, and preaching the Word of God so that we might be spiritually fed. He stays up late at night with us, with us on his hearts. He thinks about us. He prays for us. He carries our burden on his heart. As a man who, what, 17, 18 weeks ago, never knew us. That's, that's another example of true greatness. What, a, what an example we have. What a pastor we are blessed with here at Sovereign Grace Church, Sydney. You know what? We should not only be pursuing biblical greatness in the church context, but we should make sure that we're pursuing it in other contexts too. Don't forget that, folks. 
As I've mentioned already, humility of service has not been, a, not been something that's probably characterized my life as it should have. You see, I've, I find it easy to serve when it's, when it's up the front, like now, when the spotlight's on me. <laughs> I don't mind serving then. I'm, in fact, I'm a, I think I'm a great servant then. I do, a, I do a smashing job. But you know what? You take the spotlight off, you take me off the stage, I struggle. I struggle to serve. I've had, I've had good mates of, mates of mine, two of them who are here this morning, who, who in the past have, have helped me see how out of the spotlight, my life isn't characterized by humility of service. So it's something that I need to work hard at. I need to, I need to be aware of my temptations to serve myself. Um, and and you, you, see that, you see that popping up in your home first. I saw it. When I look back, I traced it back to even my relationship with my wife, my laziness in the way that I failed to serve her and rather would serve myself, just in little ways, but yet significant ways. It starts in the home, doesn't it? Maybe, maybe you guys can relate to me. Maybe this is something that you struggle with as well. As I've mentioned previously, maybe the struggle is in this church context, Sovereign Grace Church, Sydney. Maybe you desire to be in a more prominent position in this church, like James and John desired. Or maybe your struggle is at home, behind closed doors, in the way that you serve your, li- your wife or, or your husband or failure to do so with humility. Maybe it's your kids and the way you struggle to, to serve them with graciousness and patience and be an example that way. Or maybe it's, a, it's an all-consuming pursuit of greatness in your studies or in your career. Wherever your struggle with pride and pursuit of worldliness, greatness is found in your life and it'll be there. It'll be somewhere there. Listen up, because there's much hope. Praise God that Jesus doesn't stop at verse 44. This is, this is two, point two, my final point, greatness modelled. Listen up again to verse 45. Greatness modelled. Verse 45 says, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. A ransom for many. In verse 45, Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man. Did you notice that? That's intentional. It's a, it's a self-proclaimed title, Son of Man. And the Son of Man carries several meanings with it. Firstly, it refers to Jesus' humanity. Jesus was 100% God, and yet, somehow, 100% human. It refers to his humanity Secondly, the title of the Son of Man refers to the fact that Jesus was and still is to this day the unique representation 
of the human race. Jesus is an example of what we should have been. He is what we always should have been. In Genesis 3, we read that sin entered our world, entered our lives. Jesus is not only a flesh and blood human being, but he is the he is the human being. He is the one true man. That's what the title Son of Man refers to. That's what he's using in verse 45. And the implication of this is that the Son of Man, the one true man who lived and still lives the truest ever human life of complete sinlessness and devotion to God the Father came not to have the very creatures that he created, the very creatures who rebelled against him, he came not to have them serve him, but he came to serve those creatures in whom he created. The ones through whom all living things were created and the ones through whom all living things hold together, according to Colossians 1, came to this earth as a humble servant. Earlier on this morning, we sung the song, Indescribable, right? He who flung the stars into space. <laughs> he whom all, through all things were created and through him through all things in this universe hold together. He who allows you to take every breath that you take right now in this hall this morning. He, he came to serve. He came to this earth to serve as a humble servant. If you flick ahead a few chapters in Mark's Gospel to chapter 15, you will read that the Son of Man did indeed, to make, did indeed make it to Jerusalem. And once there, he backed up his teaching on greatness with the overwhelming argument of his own example. All that Jesus predicted happened. He was betrayed by his own. He was publicly mocked, spat on, beaten and crucified. You see, the selfless, sacrificial death of a son of man provides us, and listen, provides us here this morning with the ultimate example of biblical true greatness. Nowhere else in history do we find such an astonishing example of true greatness, of humble, servant-like service. From a life marked by humility of service to a death characterized by selfless love. If you want the ultimate example of true greatness in the flesh, look no further, folks, than Jesus Christ, our servant saviour. However, Jesus' perfect sinless life and, and sacrificial death provides us with something even greater than our ultimate example of, of true greatness. He's more than an example. His life and death are more than an example to us. In verse 45, Jesus, Jesus describes his death as, did you notice it, paying a ransom. Dave taught us a few weeks back that at the time of the writing of the New Testament, the word ransom conjured up a, a familiar image for folks in that culture. You see, ransom 
Ransom was a price paid to liberate a slave or someone condemned. Now, we're used to thinking about ransoms in Hollywood movies, right, where an, an innocent American teenager gets like, uh, kidnapped by a Mexican drug cartel and the poor innocent kid uh, needs, needs someone to come and save him. Um, he, needs, he needs to have a ransom paid for his freedom. Whereas the term ransom didn't have anything to do with innocence back in the time of the writing of the New Testament. No, the term ransom had to do with releasing from bondage, guilty or convicted people. That's, that's the connotation that the word ransom had, guilty people, enslaved people, people under bondage. And you know what? We are that guilty party who once lived in complete slavery to sin and selfishness. We were completely incapable, guys, of changing our situation. Complete slaves to our own selfishness, selfish ambition and sinful desires. We were in this world without a hope and without a future. The Bible teaches us. However, the good news is that the Son of Man came to give His life as a ransom for us. The death of the Son of Man was, it was no normal death. Rather, it was a death. The death was a public payment by an almighty representative, Jesus, of the debts of sinful man to a holy God. It was a ransom paid by God the Son to God the Father. It was a ransom payment that required the death of the Son of Man, a substitutionary death, substitutionary meaning in place of another, a substitutionary death where the sinless one stood in the place of the guilty one and bore the punishment, the full punishment that the guilty one deserved. It was a death that satisfied once and for all the righteous holy wrath of God. And it was a death. It was a death church that, that won us our freedom from captivity to sin and selfishness. You see, our Saviour's death in our place for our sins is the only reason we can now choose to even emulate, desire to emulate a life of true greatness a life that is characterized by humility of service. Apart from his death, we have no hope of change. His death won the freedom for us. It also won us forgiveness of sins. And now through the Holy Spirit that dwells in us, his death, that death 2,000 years ago, it's actively transforming us. You see, the disciples' journey, it didn't stop at Mark chapter 10. These, these men, these disciples, these selfish, proud, ambitious men went on to become the pillars of the church. To some extent, we're here today in 2010 in Sydney, Australia because of those men, because of those disciples. You see, something happened, didn't it? Something happened... They didn't stay selfish, ambitious men. You see, 
the Savior's death, it affected them. It had, it had a life-transforming impact on them. And they went on to become men who lived lives of true greatness, men that were characterized by humble service. The bondage to selfishness and slavery to sin it was broken. They were set free by the ransom of the Savior. James. James was the first one to be martyred. By the sword, by Herod's sword, we read in Acts chapter 12. That's a changed man. That ain't a selfishly ambitious man there, is it? Who gives his life for the Lord. He's put to death by the sword. That's, that's the effect of the Savior's death on a man's life. That's the power of the cross. That's the power of the gospel. If you're here this morning and you haven't put your faith, haven't put your trust, you haven't responded to Jesus, I would, I would plead with you. Consider Christ. Consider that ransom, that, that payment that He is holding out to you for your freedom from sin, for your salvation. Christ died so that you might experience life. Not slavery to sin, but, but life freedom to be able to, to serve your Creator, to serve your Saviour, to live a life of true greatness that is characterised by humble service. Consider Christ. Consider putting your faith and trust and responding to His call. If you want to talk about, to someone about that, I'm here after the service, as is Patrick and, and, and Wilsey and, and anyone else here who you'd want to speak to. We're here. We'd love to pray for you and speak to you more about that. As I finish, let me remind you that that grace that transformed the disciples' lives has the same power to transform your life and my life today. Any desire that you have in your heart to serve others, did you know it's God's grace actively working in you? He's already working in you. Any desire or thought you even have of wanting to serve in this church, of wanting to serve others, is His grace actively working in you because of His death, because of His death in your place that sets you free. And here's the good news, even more good news, He will continue that work in you. The promise of Scripture is that He will continue to transform you until one day you will resemble the servant Saviour. So take hope. Find peace in that grace, in our servant Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Lord, thank you, not only for our servant Saviour's example, Thank you for our servant Saviour's death. Our servant Saviour's substitutionary death. Thank you that He stood condemned in our place so that we might go free. What a Saviour. Thank you, Jesus.